Well, welcome to the Great Tradition Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Alec, and we want to learn from the 2,000 years of Christians who came before us because we believe it helps us become more like God. Today, we are beginning a new series on the doctrine of the Trinity, what it is, how it developed, different ways Christians can understand it, uh, how to pursue a relationship with this Trinitarian God. Uh, This is the doctrine that seeks to describe the God who has revealed himself to us in scripture, one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, For a Christian, there should be nothing more important than knowing this God. But here's the thing. It can be tempting for some of us to approach the Trinity as true, but irrelevant. We understand like why it's so important to affirm who Jesus is, but sometimes we ask the question, why should we care about how the Trinity works as a whole? But that logic doesn't really check out in other situations. In a court of law, uh, the language you use to describe the events matter. It may make the difference as to whether or not you're declared guilty. Uh, If that special someone says, I love you, and you respond by saying literally anything other than I love you too, you are clearly communicating something to that person, and what's being communicated isn't good. Here's the thing. In the Bible, God has revealed himself to us in a specific way. So we should try to get to know him on his terms. Another thing to keep in mind with this is we sometimes wonder why the Trinity is important to understand, but we also kind of intuitively know that the Trinity is important. And this comes out in our language. For example, if I were to say to you that Jesus is half man, half God, you might feel uncomfortable with that language, even if you didn't understand why. Or if I said something to you like, God created Jesus, you might feel a little uneasy even if you couldn't put it into words. I think many of us speak vaguely about the Trinity, but we also intuitively become uncomfortable when bad language about the Trinity is used. Yeah, I I actually don't quite know if that's 100% true. Um, just because I've seen people uh, use use language about God that like Jesus is 50% man and he's 50% God. Like I've heard that sort of thing, you know? Um, so for example, like let's say that you're half man and half dog. You're not man or a dog, you're a man dog, you know? So that mm. wouldn't make sense. Jesus has to be both 100% in order for him to actually be truly God. But we talk about him oftentimes as though he's 50%. You know, I heard one, and actually I was corrected on this recently. Um, Dr. Ray, when we were at Lincoln, he would say, you know, it's not God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And then I was just corrected and told, actually, it is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. But it depends on what you mean by that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. But God in that name typically refers to the Father throughout scripture and then jesus is fully man fully god so you have to know what you're talking about with these things but i feel like we we can easily drift into heretical language without even noticing what we're doing um but the thoughts i I think i think you're right on that the thoughts are pretty uh they're a little bit easier to identify so maybe it's it's intuitive for some of us and it needs to become intuitive for others Is that kind of what we're saying? Yeah, I think maybe it's traditional. Maybe Mm. it's, we don't know the language, 
but we know the thoughts. Maybe it's we don't know the thoughts or the language. I think it really depends on the person. Okay. Well, here, here's something that I find interesting. This, this tension is basically the history of the Trinity in a nutshell. Uh, the early church had this exact problem that, that we're talking about right now. Many of the church fathers clarified and standardized their language when errors started to pop up. Other people were teaching heresies about God or to define that word. Other people were teaching untruths about God, and they needed to provide better language to combat it. And so they developed statements that describe who God is, such as the Nicene Creed. It's, it's kind of interesting, actually. Uh, some of the most important theological documents we have exist, at least in part, because people didn't like the language that someone else was using. Uh, unfortunately, we sometimes only learn through mistakes, and that's a large part of Christian theology. Uh, other people were saying it wrong. The church needed to say it right. Here's an official statement of the right way to say it. And to be fair, that's not the entire story, uh, that's, but, that, but that is a large part of it. And because of that, I want to help you care about the Trinity by introducing to you five historical heresies about the Trinity. Uh, we're going to give you a basic overview of what the heresy is, and then we'll talk about why it's a problem. And there's a reason right now why I'm only sharing five, and the reason is consideration of time. There's actually a lot of Trinitarian heresies that we could get into, but we would need way more than one episode to do that. Uh, so here's kind of the hope of us just sampling some of the heresies. Uh, the hope is that when we understand just how many possibilities we have for screwing up our understanding of God, we can see then why language matters. All right, so enough introduction stuff. Time to tell you a bunch of heresies. We'll start with the earliest and end with the latest. The, the first one, and definitely the earliest Trinitarian heresy, is something known as docetism. Docetism isn't an official religion or anything like that, but it was a way of describing who Jesus was that developed early. And when I say this heresy developed early, I mean that the 12 apostles were still alive when this heresy was circulating. Docetism basically teaches that Jesus didn't really have a physical body and he didn't really die. But instead, he only appeared to have a body and he only appeared to die. So imagine like Jesus coming to earth as like a Star Trek hologram, but this Star Trek hologram is able to actually interact with the world and do stuff too. That's, that's docetism in a nutshell. And here's why this is a problem. The Christian faith depends on the teaching that Jesus physically came to us. He physically lived with us, physically died for us, and he physically rose from the dead. I mean, if none of those things happened, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that our preaching is worthless and our faith is worthless. In fact, uh, I mentioned this was early. This heresy was early enough that the apostles actually addressed docetism in the New Testament. In 1 John, for example, John is writing about it and he says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And then he goes even further in his subsequent verses to say that people who deny this are actually the Antichrist. So with docetism, you have this idea that anything created is, is yucky or even evil. It's, it's kind of a dualistic way of looking at the world. And the idea behind docetism is that there's no way that God could stoop so low to become flesh and bone. But the whole point of the gospel is that God loved us enough to actually become one of us and not just save our spirits or save like the floaty part of us, 
but to save us entirely, body and soul. One of the problems we see is if Jesus is a docetic Jesus, then our body is actually gross and we should try to avoid everything we can. We should try and do everything we can to escape it or to avoid it. However, Jesus doesn't call us to escape the world. He calls us to live in the world rightly. Yeah. And so in our culture right now, just to add something in here, this is still a somewhat important topic. Um, on my plane ride back from India, for example, I met this nice lady from, you know, the United States. Uh, she claimed to be a Christian and it was, it, we had a fun conversation, but when I got to the resurrection, we disagreed very strongly on um, that topic. She talked about the resurrection as though it were this metaphorical thing describing how our spirit works. For her, um, I was under, if I was understanding her correctly, and I hope I'm not doing her some injustice, human beings are this spiritual thing that is spiritual in spite of our bodies not mm. because of not integrated with our bodies and as a result our bodies aren't necessarily all that important you know maybe we'll revisit that later i don't know another reason that this is important is that if as paul says in um, ephesians 1 10 one of my favorite verses absolutely love this if all things are summed up in jesus then Jesus Christ, that includes humanity, okay? Jesus is the archetypal human. He's the human that becomes the background meaning of what it means to uh, consider anything human at all. And so what it means to be human is to be like Christ. So if Christ's body was not important, then neither are ours. Now, I don't know how this could not seem like a big deal, but maybe it doesn't to you. Um, and maybe it doesn't seem like it's practical, um, but unlike the agents, ancients, we can actually imagine a world where we don't have a justification for, say, birthing children, using our bodies for anything other than, you know, our desires. Um, as Irenaeus accused some of the Gnostics uh, in against uh, heresies, you know, if you see the body as the filth, surrounding this incorruptible gold, then you have one of two options. You can either give your body whatever it desires because it these desires, they can't corrupt the soul. This desire doesn't hurt you. My soul is gold, um, which some could even, you know, you could look at Martin Luther and some could say, oh, he does something like that. Not really when you look at him too closely, but yeah, that's, that's a temptation that we have. Um, and then the other thing, however, that the Gnostics said you can do is you can then, you can deprive your body of whatever it needs. So you can either go into excess because it can't hurt you, or you can see it, your body as an enemy and you need to attack it. Another way to look at this is if we say that God didn't become man because to become man would be to become something gross or lower. We're basically saying that God created something gross or that God created something bad, but mm. God doesn't create bad things because he's good. Yeah. 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 That would fundamentally misunderstand what goodness and badness are. Mm -hmm. I take a privation theory of evil. I think you do too, where we don't see evil as something that exists, 
but it's like a hole in a pair of jeans. It's there because there's something disordered in what's good. And so if there's something fundamentally wrong with the created world that made it that God could not enter into this world, then we deny what Genesis says about the creation as good. So to clarify what we're saying, when when we're saying that evil doesn't exist, we're not saying that it's not actually there. We're saying that it doesn't have a subsistence in itself in the same way that created things have a subsistence. Like, like God created the world. He created people. We could even say that he created concepts like math. Those are good things that exist because God desires them to be. But evil was not created by God. And so in that sense, it doesn't exist in the same way. It's a distortion of what exists. Yeah, evil is the absence of God, the absence of his order, the absence of, you know, like the illustration of the genes, a whole doesn't exist. Yeah. A whole is something that is inherent um, in the gene. So the genes, the genes actually exist. The whole is just the genes aren't like they're supposed to be. That emptiness in there, that's evil. That's all evil is. So if you make the world itself an evil thing, you're giving it some sort of substance, or you're just denying that God created the world good. You're denying the scripture itself. To kind of sum all this up, the fact that God chose to become man says something about what he thinks about us. All right, so let's move on to Martianism. This is a second century heresy, and you have one guess who taught it. Um, Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher. No, Martian. Well, I was pretty close. Schleiermacher taught it too, but we can come back to that later sometime. Yes, three people will get that joke, but that's okay. They're my only friends. They're my only friends. <laughs> Martian saw the Old Testament and the New Testament as incompatible because they presented, according to him, two different gods. Uh, in Martianism, you have an evil Old Testament god known as Yahweh and a good, loving New Testament God who is the father of Jesus. And Martian taught that Jesus came to save us from the evil Old Testament God. And because of this, Martian taught that the entire Old Testament itself should be rejected. And actually, also the New Testament, almost all of the New Testament should be rejected. The only thing that you can accept is an edited version of the Gospel of Luke and the writings of Paul, because everything else, according to him, was, was too Jewish. The problem with this heresy is that you can't separate the Old Testament and the New Testaments, and you can't separate the Old Testament God from the New Testament God. If we have this stereotyped duality between a mean God and a loving God, and the loving God of Jesus saves us from the mean God in the Old Testament, then what we actually end up with is a God who doesn't ask anything of us. All we got to do is say that we love him and do whatever we want and everything's going to be fine. But that's not what the one God of the Bible is like. In fact, oftentimes our stereotypes of the two different Testaments are challenged. In actuality, the God of the Old Testament is often loving and often compassionate because that's who he is. And the God of the New Testament still judges. I mean, Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 14 that whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciples. So we can't just simply separate the God of the Bible into two different gods. Yeah, I mean, Jesus talks about hell a lot in scripture. 
you look through the Sermon on the Mount, this text that I, I mean is universally seen, at least as far as I know, is almost universally seen as the most beautiful ethical teaching that ever came into existence. And what does he say when you get to Matthew 7? He starts talking about, you know, I never knew you. He starts talking about narrow is the way and uh, narrow is the gate, but wide is the way that leads to destruction. Wide is that gate? And, and so there is this severity inside of the New Testament. In fact, in Hebrews, I believe it's Hebrews chapter uh, 10, um, and I think chapter 12 says something along these lines as well. Moses is compared with Jesus, and then the the writer of Hebrews' point inside of chapter 10 is that how much greater is the condemnation that a person can receive if they reject Jesus over rejecting the law of Moses, which was lesser. And so the greatness of our Lord makes the judgment even more severe. Mm -hmm. Now, just a side note, I don't think that contradicts God's love. Some people have problems with that. And it's because I follow Maximus the Confessor. The love of God is the fire of hell. And so there's the condemning presence of God is, is really you being in God's presence and hating it. And so, but it's more severe. You get more of that presence with Jesus than you do in the law of Moses, which veiled that presence of Christ. And therefore well, that condemnation. Well, and even if we don't go as far as Maximus, I think it's still fair to say that hell exists because God is love. Like everything God does, he does out of who he is. And so even his wrath, in a sense, must be an expression of his love. And this, again, shows us that we can't just have a mean God and a, and a good God. There is there is one God who is good, and everything he does is good. And, mm -hmm. it, it, and it's expressed yeah. in different ways. Yeah. Let's talk about another heresy, or in this case, a pair of heresies, adoptionism and modalism, which are oftentimes spoken about together. These two heresies are different forms of an underlying issue that developed in the second and third centuries out of a belief that God is one. And to be fair, God is one. But because of that, some people saw it as impossible to also see God as three. So we'll talk about modalism first. Modalism basically teaches that God is only one divine person but he reveals himself in different forms or modes. If you ever heard analogies for the Trinity, like God is like H2O, you've heard modalism. It can come in three different forms, liquid, vapor, and ice, but it's still just three different forms or modes of the same thing. That, that's what modalism is. It's three different versions of the same thing. The Father is the same person as the Son. The Son is the same person as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the same person as the Father. Yeah, just to interject, you know, Modalism has big problems, practically speaking. One of them that we can see metaphysically is it kills the idea of God as love. So um, this might get a little technical, but let's jump in anyway. So love is a relational entity and God, 1 John 4, 8 says, is love. So if I say that God is one, but not also three, then how do I explain the character of God's love as a quality of his divine nature? I could say God is loving um, by way of his works, but that would not be an expression of his nature as love. Um, in that sense, it would be a quality 
that God would have brought into existence. If I were to talk about his creation, his works somehow demonstrating his love. And in fact, that would seem to imply that God is changeable, that he can make something and then that thing can change him, um, which is really not good. Uh, it wouldn't mean that love is really at the ground of all being like we Christians believe, or that God, um, God's love could, in a modalist understanding, just be conceived as an empty analogy in my mind. And so, but if God exists as three in one, then he actually is love. And love has a transcendent character all on its own. And we can participate in that as we live the Christian life. So to me, this trade-off is really big in a practical way. It changes the whole structure and vision of reality itself or to say all that in a very simple way if god is love who did he have to love before creation yeah yeah had, and then there was the trinity yeah. <laughs> there was loving relationships between the three persons well and if we're made in the image of a god who didn't love from all time how do we what does it mean for us to love at all it yeah. seems like there's a practical disconnect for me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to reject it. That, and how does Jesus say on the cross, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, what is he, me, me, why have you forsaken me? You remember Dr. Ray saying mm -hmm. that in class? Or another thing with modalism I've been thinking about is like, we talk a lot in church about how we are meant to be in community. The Trinity provides an explanation for why that is the case. Hmm. God is a community of persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. I hope I didn't just say a heresy there that I didn't understand. But God, God exists in community because there's three persons who know each other and love each other. And we were created to be like God. And so part of being like God is loving other people and being in loving relationship with other people. Hmm. So that's modalism. For adoptionism, here's the problem. Uh, it basically taught that Jesus was born human and God the Father adopted him as son at some point in his life. Basically, Jesus was a human just like everyone else, but he was good enough to become divine because of his obedience. And this is a problem, not only because it denies that Jesus is God, uh, but also because it affects how we understand salvation. If it is true that Jesus earned his divinity through obedience, what does that say about us? All, all that we have to do then is be good enough and we can be adopted too, but we know that that's not what happened. Uh, the proper understanding is that the son is fully God and he became man. John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word became flesh. We read in the Bible that God became man. He chose to become one of us and this allows us to become like him. It's, it's, it's a different way of understanding our salvation. In this model, Jesus descended to us so that we can ascend to him versus Jesus ascended to God. And so we can work hard enough and ascend to him also. One of those is what the Bible teaches and one of them is, is not. Monophysitism. This heresy taught that Jesus only had a divine nature and not a human nature 
or to say it another way, that he had a human nature that was overpowered by the divine. And the reasoning for this would be, how else could a man be perfectly obedient to God unless he didn't have a human will or that human will was subordinated in some way? To put it another way, monophysitism basically teaches that Jesus was a flesh robot that God controlled. And there's a very obvious uh, problem with this way of thinking. It makes Jesus a flesh robot that God controlled. <laughs> That's such a creepy thing to say. Jesus is a flesh robot that God controlled. That just sounds so creepy. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> but if I remember correctly, this heresy can mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. And so we recorded our conversation with Dr. Fairbairn yesterday together. So we're kind of going out of order here. But one thing that we learned from him is that the Oriental Orthodox have a different understanding of monophysitism than um, the people in the West or the traditional Eastern Orthodox, those who accept the Council of Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian definition. Um, so the Oriental Orthodox will call this meophysitism. And they these issues with monophysitism as it's expressed inside of their tradition have been seen as non-issues throughout the course of time. Um, so for example, the Catholics recognize Oriental Orthodox baptisms in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to have a Trinitarian baptism to be recognized by the Roman Catholic Church. So they think that they have a doctrinally correct version of the Trinity, it seems. The issue at the time of Chalcedon was really sticky for multiple reasons, um, one of which was, as I said before, they're using different terms, but theologically, there's more to this. Uh, theologically, if somebody says that Jesus has a divine nature, then it seems to imply that he wasn't fully human. If Jesus was not fully human, then he could not actually represent us, and therefore he couldn't accomplish anything for our salvation. So I'll quote David Bentley Hart's Atheist Delusions, quoting Gregory of Nazianzus. If anybody wants a really good introduction to the practical nature of the Trinity, um, David Bentley Hart has a chapter in his book, Atheist Delusions. I think it's like chapter 13 or chapter 15 on it, on divinizing humanity. It's really, really good, and I'd highly recommend it. But this is something that I'm pulling from that. Gregory of Nazianzus stated the matter in a regular, rather elegant aphorism in his epistle to Cladontius. That which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. But whatever is united with his divinity has been saved. That is to say, if any natural aspect of our shared humanity, body, mind, will, desire was absent from the incarnate God, then to that degree, our nature has never entered into communion with his and has not been refashioned in him, end quote. So basically, Jesus redeems our human nature because he has a human nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. And there's a whole lot more we could have done with this episode, but we would need more than an episode to get into more than this. By now, I hope you get the point. Uh, people have been creatively interpreting the person of Jesus and the persons of the Trinity since the beginning of the church. And these distortions of the Trinity always come with consequences. If you worship a docetic Jesus, you're 
not actually worshiping a God who became man. You're worshiping the God of holograms. If you're worshiping an adoptionist Jesus, you're worshiping a man and not a God. If you worship the God of Martian, you're saying that there is a God who is evil, which is a big problem. If you're worshiping a modalistic God, you're not worshiping a Trinitarian God. If you're worshiping a Monophysite Jesus, you have to ask the question, did Jesus really truly willingly die for you? Or did a flesh robot controlled by God die for you in some game of puppet theater? Everything we say about the Trinity has a consequence. All right, so the only thing left to do for this episode is to ask the question, what can we do with all of this information? How can we go deep into the Trinity without falling into error? And I've got a couple action steps that I think might help with this. Uh, the first thing to talk about is this. Uh, I would encourage you to try and understand who the Trinity is by using simple language. And probably the simplest way that I can think of is a line from the Athanasian Creed, and it goes like this. It says, thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Or another way to simply understand the Trinity is this. There is one God and he is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons are distinct from one another. Uh, they are not the same person, yet at the same time there is only one God. I really like this one. I think it was Augustine who said it. There's one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Yes. Yeah. Really like that one. So here's what I would encourage you to do. Be dogmatic about that simple language about the Trinity. But once you have the simple language, explore the depths of who he is from there. In, in one sense, it's a very simple teaching, but the complexity comes in when you try and understand how that works. Like, how can one God be three persons? And how do these relationships work? And all of that and some of the history behind all of that is what we're going to spend the rest of the episodes in this series talking about. With that said, if you'd like to go further on your own, um, I want to give you some resources for further study which you'll find in the show notes. Well, not me, Ian's the one doing this episode. So Ian will provide those inside of the show notes. Um, and some of them are books you can purchase, others are free resources, ancient Christian creeds for you to read, free YouTube lectures, that sort of stuff to continue your education. Um, also, if you've made it this far, consider liking this video or subscribing to our podcast. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment. We didn't mention all the ancient heresies. If you're a theology nerd like we are, then share your favorite Christological or Trinitarian heresies so people can keep learning. Um, and if you're one of those weird YouTubers who just likes to type first on everything, I'd love to see that. It'd be hilarious. I'm going to try to beat you to it, though. That's I'd all. be impressed if someone could, could beat the, the first comment from the person who actually posted the video. That'd be like next level stuff right there. Oh, yeah. I'd have to work for Google. That would be really creepy. Wow. Well, anyway. Um, God bless. <laughs>